wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. And he made a statement in one of the letters that he wrote that said that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't believe what we're celebrating today, that he literally died and went into a tomb and literally came back to life. If you don't believe that, he says, it's not really important what else you believe. Because if you don't believe that, then none of the other stuff matters. Because he says that Easter is the culmination. It's kind of the the center point. It's the pinnacle of our faith. And so when we come together to celebrate on Easter Sunday, we really are celebrating the most pivotal point in human history. But what I love about what Paul said was that he takes the focus of Easter and he actually points it to the other parts of Christianity. It's not that he's taking away from Easter. It's not that he's making Easter less important or or devaluing it at all, but he takes the focus of Easter and points it to the rest of the stuff that we can believe, that we can read in the Bible. And so he says, hey, listen, if you don't believe that, then it doesn't matter what else you believe. He focuses our attention on Easter and then turns our attention to something else. And that's kind of what I want to do today. I want to follow that same pattern and I want to focus, take the focus of Easter and really point us to some stuff that happens beyond Easter Sunday. Now, in doing so, I don't want you to misunderstand my motives at all. My motive today is not to take away from Easter or to devalue it because I, like I said, believe that Easter is the most important single event in human history. And the reason that I believe that is because this single event means nothing is ever history. Now, here's what I mean by that. This single event in human history that is the most important actually means that nothing is history because as we prayed a few minutes ago, the idea that Jesus who died came back to life, proving that even death is not more powerful than him and the power of God in him, it means that nothing else that we face, nothing else that we're worried about, nothing else that we're uncertain about our future, nothing else is more powerful than him. Because death is that thing that is like the finality of all things related to humans, right? We kind of live and we work and we do school and we enjoy life. And then at some point, we die. And then it's over. And so if him resurrecting on Easter proves that even that is not the end, then nothing that we face, nothing that we are sure is the end is actually the end. It causes us to change the framework with which we view everything else in life. And so I think Easter is the most pivotal single event in human history. But beyond that, I think it is something very special and sacred. And so in taking the focus of Easter and turning it somewhere else, I don't want to take away from what Easter is. I want us to connect the dots to this story. But I want us to figure out that if Easter is all that I've said that it is, and if Easter is all that Scripture says that it is, And if Easter holds all of the power that we say and we sing about, then how should that affect our lives at all? Like, it's nice on Easter Sunday to get up and to dress up if you're dressed up. If you're not dressed up, that's fine. And to, you know, do an Easter egg hunt and to eat with family and friends and to have a great day. And maybe some of you were off work on Friday and maybe some of you might be off tomorrow. And I know the kids have been out of school and some of the kids in other counties and surrounding areas are out of school this coming week. And so it's great during this season of time to have a great time and just kind of celebrate Easter. But if we just take all of the power of Easter and all of the celebration of Easter and we just try to contain it, in one hour on a Sunday morning, 
or in one day on the calendar, I think we miss the importance and the power in our lives. Here's how I might say that. How should you live on Monday in response to Easter Sunday? How should we live tomorrow in response to today? And so if we're going to really look at that, we have to go to a scripture passage in the Bible where we see some people after the resurrection, after Easter Sunday, and how they too were living. And we don't want to just pick some random people. We want to pick some people that were connected to Jesus, who had experienced the heartache of his death on Friday, and who had heard about and maybe even experienced a portion of the celebration of his resurrection, either there at the tomb or thereafter when Jesus appeared to them. So if you've got a Bible, flip with me to John chapter 21. If you don't have a, a paperback or leather-bound Bible, you can flip with me on an app on your phone, a smartphone. And if you don't have that or you're just not comfortable trying to follow that, you can follow along on the screen, and I'll try to stay out of the way today the way we have it set up. John chapter 21. We're going to begin reading in verse 2. And we're going to read about some guys that were friends with Jesus. And this is what it says. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Now let me set this up a little bit and tell you that this is after the death of Jesus and this is after the resurrection of Jesus. We can read uh, in, in some of the previous chapters that he died and he resurrected. We actually see in previous chapters that Jesus had begun to appear to those closest to him. And so now we read this passage in John 21. And so we have some of the disciples, not all of them, but some of these disciples are gathered together and they don't know what to do and so Simon Peter, who was never one to shy away from taking charge and taking the lead and speaking up, Simon Peter says, okay, I'm going to go fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been back to like a high school reunion. You ever been back to a high school reunion? Anybody? How many of you have been to like a college reunion? Been back to something like that? I've never personally been back to a high school reunion. I'm not really sure why. It's not been really intentional. I have been to some like alumni events for my college, not necessarily a reunion, I guess, but like some alumni events. But here's what I've realized when I show up at the college that I attended, graduated from. Here's, here's what I realized when I walk on campus. It's not near as cool as I remember it. Like when I walk around campus, in my mind's eye, I remember it being the most amazing time I had ever experienced. Like I passed the softball field where we won the intramural championship. Another sports reference, so sorry. I passed that place where I had that first date. and I pass, I drive through town and I passed that restaurant, probably a Mexican restaurant, where I ate a lot of meals. I passed the Papa John's where I worked delivering pizzas there while I was in school so I didn't starve to death, both with the money they gave me and the pizzas that I took home with their permission most of the time. And I passed the other places that I worked jobs and I mean, I remember that being an amazing time, and it was. But when I, when I walk across the campus there where I attended school, and I just kind of look at the other students, I'm just thinking, man, this, they don't know me. Like, they don't realize how cool I was when I was here. Like, they're, they're not really... There's just something missing, right? I, I, I can't really explain it. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe when you walked into your high school reunion, I mean, you got your hair done, you got a new suit, you had lost weight, you had not eaten in like six months leading up to that so that you would be skinny for that moment. And you walked in and you were expecting everybody to be like, what's up, bro? What's up, man? And somebody to hug you. And man, you, and you walked in and like everybody was awkward and everybody's wearing name tags. And you got to look at the name tags because nobody looks like what they used to look like. And it just doesn't feel the same, right? My senior year of high school, 
I had enough credits to graduate at the beginning of that year, but I had to take two required senior classes. I had to take senior English, and I had to take chemistry. And so the way it worked out with my school, I was able to get into a program where I only had to go to school until 10.30 every morning, and then I got to leave school, which was amazing. And then I got to go and work a job from like 11 until like 2.30, and then I got to come back uh, for, for our, our baseball practice. And so, another sports reference, sorry. And so I, uh, I would go to this country club where I got a job. And it was amazing because all of my high school friends were still in school. And here I was working the 11 o'clock to 2.30 shift at this country club. And so I was working with like some college age guys and I was working with some adult men and, and women and, and we were just, you know, we were kind of a, a tight knit group. We had a lot of fun. I would eat and, you know, do the things, but a lot of guys weren't playing during lunch. So there wasn't a ton to do all the time, but I worked every day, Monday through Friday from 11 to 2.30. And in doing that, I kind of got in in the culture of that country club. Like I learned all the inside jokes. I knew all the members I knew the members you wanted to kind of buddy up to because they gave great tips, and I knew the members that you wanted to avoid, and I knew the members who, you know, people were talking about, and there were some things going on, and you kind of wanted to know that so you might could use that later to get better tips, and, and so I knew who to get close to and who to stay away from, and I knew all the inside stories about the staff, and I knew who was dating who and who didn't know that they were dating, and I knew all this. I mean, it was amazing, and so then I went away to college after I graduated high school. I went away for my freshman year, and after my freshman year, I came back home for just a few weeks, because once you go to college, you hope you never have to come back home, but I did have to come back home for a few weeks because I had no money, and so I worked at this country club for like a month during that summer after my freshman year, and this crazy thing happened. It wasn't the same. Like, I showed back up to work, and I kind of expected to just walk in the clubhouse there and everybody to remember me, and I had to reintroduce myself to a bunch of guys. They're like, now, who are you? I was like, oh, I'm Jeremy. Remember, I, I used to work here, and I worked like every day, 11 to 2. Remember the funny thing we used to say? And they didn't remember. And, and I forgot most of the members of the country. I forgot their name. I didn't remember, like, who I was supposed to get close to for good tips and who I was supposed to stay away from because of bad tips. And it was a horrible experience because I went back to something that I used to be a part of, and it didn't feel the same. And here's what I see happening with these disciples. Jesus had called them out from being fishermen. I mean, the, the names that we read here, these disciples that were a part of this passage in John 21, these were guys that were fishermen. And three years before, Jesus had been walking along by the seashore, and he had walked up to them, and he said, hey, come and follow me. He said, drop your nets, quit being fishers of fish, and come be fishers of men, and so they drop their nets and they come and they follow him. And over the course of the next three years, they see him do incredible miracles. They hear him teach some incredible things. A few days before this passage, they had sat with him at the, the communion table and they had taken bread and they had taken the cup and they had heard him talk about the fact that he was going away and they didn't really understand what it meant. And then all of a sudden, they see that he's arrested and he goes to the cross and he literally dies on that cross. And then they take his body down and they put it in a tomb. And these guys who were following Jesus and doing everything that he said, they didn't know what to do. And so they did, when they didn't know what to do, what you and I do, when we don't know what to do, 
they went back to what was familiar to them. They went back to what was comfortable. And anytime we aren't sure what to do, it's easier to do something we used to do than to go and do something new. When we don't know, just think about this pattern in your life, and and it's true in mine most of the time. When I'm unsure what to do, I don't normally chart new ground there. I don't normally kind of chart new territory. I'm not like a pioneer spirit in some of those things. When I'm unsure what I'm supposed to do, I usually kind of revert back to my comfort. And so I kind of settle back into what I know. Because going back is comfortable. Going back is familiar. We know how to do back there. But moving forward is something completely different. Moving forward is scary. Moving forward is uncertain. Moving forward is optional. You don't actually have to move forward. You can just stay still or you can go back. You don't have to move forward. You don't have to grow. You don't have to experience new things. That is optional. So let's keep reading the passage that we did. Let's read just one more part of a verse here before we talk a little bit more. This is what it says in the second half of verse 3. It says, so they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I'm not a big fisherman, but I would assume that three years is not the required amount of time to forget how to fish. But they evidently forgot everything that they had been taught all of their lives. Most of these men were generational fishermen. They, like you, were taught how to fish by their dads and their grandfathers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles because for most of them where they lived there around the Sea of Galilee, it would have been the family business for a lot of these guys. And yet, when they decided to go back, they didn't catch anything all night long. I think they experienced what I experienced when I went back to my job or when sometimes I go back to the college that I attended Usually there's emptiness in trying to rekindle something from the past. There's usually emptiness when we try to go back, whether it's revisiting the old high school, whether it's going back to the old job, maybe it's going back to an old relationship. There's usually emptiness when we try to go back. Let's continue reading. Verse 4 through 6, this is what it says. So early in the morning, after they've been all night and caught nothing, early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? I think this is Jesus' sarcasm. I don't know. When I read the Bible, I think Jesus has a smirk on his face when he's yelling from the, the, from, the, from the beach. Hey, don't you have any fish? Because I think as God now, he's resurrected Jesus. I think he knows they're coming up empty, but maybe that's just the way I like to read Jesus so I don't feel so weird. Friends, haven't you any fish? And they reply, no. And he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When I read this, honestly, I laugh. Because here's the image that I get in my head. I get experienced fishermen who have not just been throwing their net on the left side of the boat all night. Like, if you've ever fished, like, after a little while, you're throwing it where you know there's no fish. You're like, maybe it's in the grass. And you just throw it over. You're like, maybe it's behind the cars in the parking lot. Like, you are, you've got to find a fish, right? I assume these guys that have been coming up empty all night have been throwing the net on every side of the boat. They've been checking in the boat to make sure there's no fish. And here Jesus is, and he says, hey, friends, haven't you any fish? And they say, no, we don't. He says, hey, well, throw your net on the other side. 
And they do, they obey. These are guys that know, hey, when Jesus says something, we should do it. And so they throw their net over and all of a sudden their net is filled to capacity. It's filled to overflowing almost. So in my mind's eye, again, like I don't know if it's just my, my daughter watching cartoons, but I'm like imagining all these little animated fish like hiding from their net under the boat all night until Jesus says it. And then they throw their net over and all the fish swarm to the net. I don't know if that's how it happened, but all I know is when Jesus says, hey, throw your net on the right side, they do. And their net is filled. I mean, it's full. They've been all night long. And at the words of Jesus, they accomplished something that they couldn't by themselves. I might say it this way. When we obey, things usually go our way. Now, in saying that, I don't want you to get this image that God's a genie and he's in a bottle and he grants you three wishes and he just promises you that you'll be rich and you'll be happy and you'll, be, you'll never be sick. And, but here's what I do know. If I believe in the stories of the Bible, if I believe in the God of Easter, if I believe in what I've experienced myself, then I believe that God is the God who created the universe. And Psalm 139 says that he even knit me together in my mother's womb. Like he didn't just be like, hey, Boom, there's Jeremy, and then I'm, he knit me together. The words there speak of a meticulous process. He put me together. If I believe that and I read these stories, I believe God's in control. It doesn't mean I'm a robot and don't have any say in the matter because I can choose to obey or choose not to, but I believe God's in control. And so if Jesus says, throw my net on the right side, even if I've tried the right side 50 times in the middle of the night, I'm going to do what these disciples did, and I'm going to say, okay. And I throw the net in. Because when I obey, it usually seems to go my way. Let's finish this passage. Verse 9, it says this, When they landed, they saw a fire burning with coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught Jesus said to them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Over the last four weeks, we've been in a series of sermons called Come to the Table. And we've talked about this idea that right before he died, Jesus brought the disciples with him to the table where they kind of took a last meal together before he went to the cross through his arrest, and then he went and he died. And we've talked about this idea that he invites us to the table, and we see this symbolism and how he takes the bread and he breaks it, he blesses it, he gives it away, he takes the cup and does the same thing. Here, after his resurrection, he's sitting on the beach in front of a campfire, he has some bread, he takes the fish that they caught, and he says, hey, come and have some breakfast with me. He just says, come and be with me. That's always the invitation of Jesus. We read in Mark chapter 3 when he's calling the disciples, he says, come that you might be with me. Here's what I know about being. It doesn't require doing. Like Jesus just said to them, come and be with me. The invitation of Jesus is always come and be with me. That would be freeing to a lot of us if we really believed that to be with Jesus, we didn't have to perform for Jesus. 
that to be with Jesus, we didn't have to earn his presence at the table. Jesus was at the table with them because he wanted to be. Jesus was sitting at the fire before they ever got there, and he invited them to come. Jesus was on a mission from the Father, and he invited them to come and be with him and be a part of the story and to be his disciples, to be fishers of men. Jesus' invitation is always, come and be with me. That's the most amazing thing about some of our best relationships, isn't it? I mean, do you just have that person, that friend, that spouse, that sibling that you can just be yourself with? I mean, you don't have to put on, you don't have to be fake. You can just be you, as crazy as that may be. I mean, as weird as you are, all your kind of craziness and idiosyncrasies and just weird habits, and, but you just get to be you with that person. And maybe that's your spouse. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's a sibling. Whoever it is, you just get to be you. Well, guess what? That's all Jesus is asking of you. Jesus is not saying, come and do something for me. Jesus is not saying, come and act like you're perfect. He's not saying, come and put on some kind of fake facade and, and act like you've got it all together and don't be afraid and don't do this and don't do that and never, you never sin and you're perfect. He's saying, no, 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 no. Come and be with me. And if you don't take anything away from today, my hope is that you just know that Jesus' invitation is always come and be with me. You don't have to do anything. Just come and be. Let's read the last few verses together before we close. Verse 15 says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, this is a pretty famous passage in the Bible. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. You wouldn't know that. And if you're not familiar with this story or the full context of this story or maybe the life of Peter, you wouldn't know that. And that's okay. I'm going to help us connect the dots here before we close. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Now, what you need to know is that in John 13, Jesus was sitting at that meal with his closest followers and Peter was there. And Jesus was talking about the fact that he had to go away. And Peter says, hey, where are you going? And Jesus says, well, listen, where I'm going, you can't go right now. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I can go. I would give everything, including my life. And Jesus kind of looks at him a little weird and says, really? Well, you say you'd give your life, but let me just tell you that before the rooster crows three times tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And theologians say that Jesus gave Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus three times because just a few chapters before in John chapter 18, he had denied him three times. 
Theologians also say that they think it's really interesting that two of the three, and maybe all three, depending on the translation, depending on part of the context, two of the three denials that Peter kind of did when he said, no, I don't even know him. They said, no, 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 I know that you were with him. I've seen you. you. You sound like him. I've seen you with him. He's like, no, I don't even know him. And one of those times he even curses at somebody and says, no, you've got it all wrong. It's not me. Two of those three times, and maybe all three, he did it standing next to a fire. And here Jesus sits on a beach next to a fire over a meal, which is that really safe, intimate place among people that have deep relationship. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Okay, take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets his feelings hurt. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, okay, then feed my sheep. I mean, I think there's incredible imagery in all of these things. I think the three and three is amazing. I don't know if that's the way God intended it, and that's why God intended it. But maybe for you, you want to think that God allows you to affirm your love for every time you've blown it with him. And guess what? You can. And you may be concerned that maybe God's grace doesn't extend far enough to you, but here's Peter who really blew it. And Jesus said, do you love me? He knew the answer. The words that he uses in the original language are a deep and intimate kind of love. They have a relationship. He knows Peter's heart. And I love all of those things. And I love what the theologians say. And I love when I read scripture that it's by the fire and he did it by the fire. I love all those things. But I think even more important than that is that Jesus didn't just allow Peter to express his love. He wanted Peter to do something with that love. Think about that. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you, Peter, love me, Jesus? This is a one-on-one conversation about your emotional attachment to me. Peter says, yes. And Jesus redirects that love towards other people. He says, okay, if you love me, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, okay, you love me, then go take care of my sheep. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus redirects Peter's affection for him towards other people. And I think that's where I get it wrong. I think probably some of you do too. I think we have convinced ourselves that Christianity, because it's a personal relationship with Jesus, is only about me and Jesus. And I think every time I express my love to Jesus, he's saying, yeah, show that love to others. I mean, Jesus did that time and time and time again because he understood that the story was about more than him and more than the disciples He knew that the story was about every person who would ever walk the earth. He understood that the story was bigger than just me and you. And so as a church, we want to live that out. We want to make the story about more than me and you. And so what we want to do today when you leave 
on your way out, there are some boxes in the lobby. And we want you to pick up a box, and there's a packing slip out there as well. And we are going to partner with Must Ministries here in Cherokee County. And here's what we're going to do. When Jesus says, feed my sheep, we want to take him up on that. We're going to attempt over the next two weeks to raise a ton of food and supplies that will help to serve the people of Cherokee County through Must Ministries. They're not the only organization. It's just the one we're partnering with now. We partner with other organizations throughout the year. But when I say a ton, I don't just mean a lot. We're going to raise a literal ton of stuff, 2,000 pounds. So over the next two weeks, we're asking you to take a box or three, and we're asking you to take a packing slip that includes some things that they have need of right now. And we want you to take this list, and we want you to pack that box. If you've got kids, we want you to take them to the store. Take them to your pantry and say, hey, what can we give to serve those who are less fortunate than us? And we want you to bring that back on April the 19th. Two Sundays from now, bring it back to the lobby. We'll have a scale out there. We're going to measure everything. We're going to give you a total before you go home. And our hope is that we raise a ton, 2,000 pounds of food and supplies to serve those in Cherokee County. Because what we want to do is we want to make the story about more than us. If the question posed today is how should we live on Monday in response to Easter Sunday, then we have to know what is Easter Sunday to us. What is Easter Sunday to you? What is Easter Sunday to me? Easter Sunday is that no matter how hopeless you are, there is hope in Jesus Christ. And so we want to be dealers in hope. And we want to provide hope to people who might be hopeless. But I understand today that there are two groups of people in this room. As I prepared and prayed about it, I know there's two groups of people sitting in this room. The first group is the group of people who has never responded to the first of Jesus' questions. You remember what he asked Peter? He said, do you love me? I think there are people in this room right now who haven't answered that question. Jesus has been asking you maybe all of your life when you were a child, when you were a teenager, you, you felt that question being asked. You, you felt God's presence. You were in Sunday school or children's church or you were at church or your grandmother's house or you were sitting around the piano with someone or you were sitting in a room and the stories of the Bible were being read and taught. But you've never answered that question for yourself. And here's what you need to know. The invitation of Jesus is always come and be with me. You don't have to do anything. He just works in your heart when you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And Romans 3.23 tells us that we're all sinners and all have fallen short of God's standard for living. So you're not by yourself in that. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. So when Jesus asks you, do you love me? You can say yes because he loved you first. Romans 5 and 9 says that God demonstrates his love to us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Before you could do anything, he invited you to be. 
with him. That's the first group. And in just a moment, we're going to pray. And everyone's going to bow their head. And they're going to close their eyes just so you can have the moment with you and God where he's asking you the question, do you love me? And we're going to give you the opportunity to respond to that. The second group of people are people that have already responded and they said, yeah, God, you know I love you. Jesus, you know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. And so today we want to give you the opportunity to live out on Monday what we celebrate on Sunday and to pick up a box and to put our faith into action and to serve those who are hopeless with the hope of Easter. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. With nobody looking around, if you would say to me today, Jeremy, I know that Jesus is asking if I love him and I've just never responded or I haven't responded in a really long time and I know that my life is not a life that says yes to that. My life is not a life that responds yes, I love you. Lord, you know everything, I love you. If today you would say, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I recognize that there's sinners all over the room, sinners all over the world. If that's the case and scripture tells us that, that's great because I know I'm a part of that group. And I have fallen short of God's standard for living. And today, I want to respond, yes, I love you, Jesus. I love you because you loved me first. And I need you to forgive my sins and be the Lord and Savior of my life. With no one looking around, if that's you, would you just lift your hand and put it right back down? Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. If you would say to me now, Jeremy, I have responded, yes. I know that I love Jesus. He knows I love him but I want to put my faith in action. I am committing today on Sunday to live out on Monday what Easter's all about. Through a box and through every other tangible way that I can find, I want to be a dealer in hope to the hopeless. Would you just lift your hand? Hands up all over the room. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much today that hands were lifted for both of these to say we need to respond to you, to say yes, that we love you, There were people in this room that said today out of the cry of their heart that they know they're a sinner in need of a savior. And so today, God, I thank you that as soon as their heart responded to you, even before their hand was lifted, that you forgave their sins, that you became the Lord and savior of their life. And so God, I thank you for that. I thank you that you give the free gift of salvation to each of us. And I pray today, God, that they would experience the joy and the hope of Easter as they respond to you on this day. God, for all of us that lift our hands for that second call, let us be dealers in hope. Let us live out on Monday what we celebrate on Sunday. And God, let us never be the same in Jesus' name.